Welcome to Breakthrough, a podcast series where we meet the entrepreneurs and innovators behind now famous companies like Deliveroo, Farfetch, Mumsnet, and Bulb to reveal the stories behind their industry transforming businesses. Brought to you by Second Home, Index Ventures, and Sifted, these talks were recorded at Second Home Clerkenwell Green as part of our Breakthrough Fortnight in London. In this podcast, David Rowan, founding editor of Wired UK and author of Non-Bullshit Innovation, and John Thornhill, FT Innovation Editor and founder of the FT's new tech site, Sifted, look at tales from visionary founders and explore game-changing companies around the world. Thank you very much, Soheb, and it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I actually came around this building a few years ago with Rowan, and it didn't look anything like this. So, um, delighted also to um, meet uh, and talk with David uh, about his fascinating new book. Uh, my job title at the FT is Innovation Editor, and so pretty much every day I'm deluged by all kinds of bullshit innovation. Uh, my inbox is teeming with uh, press releases from people telling me all about the innobabble, as David would call it. And David, you start off your book by ridiculing a lot of the talk about innovation, uh, in particular the kind of innovation safaris where people go off to Silicon Valley and look at all the wild animals they can find there, um, and innovation theatre and so on. So what is non-bullshit innovation? I think you need a better job title, John. You need to be the FT's digital Sherpa or the FT's chief disruptive growth officer or something like this. Um, because it's easier coming up with jargon than actually fundamentally realigning a business that seems to be doing well in one direction, but the internet's coming for that business model. And there's this whole world of consultants that are coming along offering services to transform your business with jargon. Um, when I was researching the book last February, I discovered that there's an organisation called the International Association of Innovation Professionals, and I looked at the website and you could do webinars and buy certifications that you were an innovation professional. It was like $500. And there's an international journal of innovation science. I didn't know it was a science. And they were having a conference called InnovaCon the next week in Washington, D.C. So I kind of buy a cheap flight, go for 24 hours and immerse myself in like the opening cocktail reception. One guy had his Bluetooth headphone on. Um, other people were giving out business cards um, and their job titles, according to LinkedIn, were um, internationally renowned thought editor, thought leader, which I, I've never had as my business card. And they were finding a ready market in these troubled, panicking organisations, whether they were airlines or manufacturing companies. And they saw that consumer behaviour was changing because of the AI and the smartphone. Um but their shareholders were kind of expecting more of the same. So how did they transform? And most of the time they did innovation theatre. They ticked the box. They had somebody in charge of innovation. They had another building somewhere, which was their startup accelerator. Or, you know, they had a team of people who could do something that never became a real product. And I got asked a lot to go and speak at their corporate offsites and to try and tell them, how the startups were thinking, how they could be more innovative. Um, and I work in the startup world quite a lot. I um, kind of try and help a lot of entrepreneurs with their 
story and their strategy. I've invested in early stage companies, including this one. Um, and so I was like showing them this magical, mystical world. And they were kind of enthralled with the cult of innovation. And increasingly, they were saying, yeah, yeah, we do innovation. We invested in a startup accelerator. And you, you, you kind of ask, so how has it changed what the core business does? And it's, oh, it's too early. There's nothing yet, but we feel we're in a good place. And you realize these were kind of, the image I use is um, on the Roadrunner cartoons when Wiley Coyote is chased off the cliff by Roadrunner, but keeps walking in the air until he looks down and realizes he's not been on solid ground for a while and then collapses. And a lot of these businesses, I'm from the world of print media. You know, I spent 10 years at The Guardian, um, eight years at Condé Nast with Wired, and Condé Nast has an amazing business selling glossy advertising in these paper things. And for quite a long time, they didn't really want to get involved with this new thing called the internet because everything was working very nicely. And suddenly you realise it's too late and the world has moved on. So then I was looking for examples of organisations, businesses, but also governments that knew things were changing. They'd found the protocols to create new value. Innovation is not some mystical cult religion. As, as I see it, it's um, using fresh thinking and the new tools to build future-facing value. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why it's hard for big companies to innovate is because they face a dilemma. I think it was a fashionable book on that subject. Um, and I think it's quite well summarized by a Facebook employee handbook, which says, if we don't create the thing that kills Facebook, something else will. Um, Facebook I, I, missed mobile, so they had to buy WhatsApp. They had yeah, to buy Instagram. No, they're a lot better at buying stuff than uh, creating it themselves, aren't they? But um, how do you do that? How do you encourage kind of know-nothing, loss-making, possibly delusional part of your own business to set about destroying probably the most profitable core of your business? has to come from the top. If the boss is not the head of innovation and then makes everybody lower down their own head of innovation, nothing really happens. The problem with a successful business especially one with shareholders and you have to go every quarter to the analysts and to the markets and say, we're going to keep doing business as usual. There's no incentive to change until it's really late. And in my travels, I went to about 20 countries to find people that were doing it. There were some common factors among the ones that seemed to get it. Mostly they weren't owned by the markets. They were either owned by the staff, a cooperative, they still had the founding family involved or the founders of the company were still involved. Um, they had a mission, an original purpose that was beyond short-term revenue generation. So there's a hundred-year-old bank in Finland I went to see that's like a building society. It's owned by its customer members. Um, but they started a hundred years ago with a real purpose. How do we help people with our difficult winters um, overcome tough challenges in life, starting a business, buying a home. The internet, of course, comes along and makes it a commodity, lending money to buy a home, lending money to start a business, so the bank becomes less relevant. So they went back to first principles, thinking, well, in a commodified world, what can we usefully do to help where the market's failing? What do people really want? They want to stay healthy so they can get back to work if they have an accident 
let's buy or build some hospitals. So this bank in Finland has now got five hospitals where it's performing surgery. And because it started from scratch, it's very efficient, super clean. If you break your leg, you can have a scan that afternoon, you can have surgery the next morning. And they've created a health insurance product, which because the hospitals are so efficient, it's actually very low priced because they're not spending that much money. And then they're thinking, okay, we were making 10% of our money lending to buy cars. In 10, 15 years, people won't buy a car. They'll use the network of autonomous cars. What are we going to do? Well, we want to stay in mobility. Let's do this thing called mobility as a service. Let's create an app, the bank's app, that you can rent a car by the minute. And, you know, we're in homes. We've got a couple of thousand estate agents, but that's all going online. We've got no advantage there. How can we help people stay in their homes for longer when they're older using sensors to monitor them? Those sorts of ideas. So it's really turning products into services. That's the kind of theme of that chapter, isn't it? Look, all of us are facing universal competition. The 16-year-old kid in Bangkok is building a better version of whatever you're doing now. Um, And they don't need to go to the VC, they can go to the crowd to raise money. They don't need to invest in big IT infrastructure. They can go to the cloud. So how do you compete? And in the old world, you had a product that was your differentiator and you found your distribution channel. What if you're a sweet little bookshop in Mayfair, in one of the most expensive streets in Mayfair, you've been there since 1936, and suddenly Amazon is taking all your revenue. How do you compete Haywood Hill Books on Curzon Street, um, which lost money for a a few years. New guy Nicky Dunn comes in six or seven years ago, thinks, how do we create a viable business now? We were selling expertise in selling books. Why don't we become experts in curating books, this personal algorithm? Why don't we help people build their libraries, bespoke libraries. They started doing this um, about four years ago. The first one was 3,000 books on modernism for a wealthy woman in her Swiss mountain chalet, and her budget was half a million pounds. So now they're doing lots of these, making tons of money. (laughs) Then they thought, we've got these very interesting people from all over the world walking into the shop, quite educated, often quite wealthy, quite thoughtful. Why don't we get to know them and offer a personal monthly book subscription service to them. So they've got half a dozen ladies who sit in the basement of Haywood Hill Books reading a couple of hundred books a year. It's a brilliant job. Is your book on their list? I asked them, and Nikki Dunn said, only if the ladies like it, church and state and all that. Um, (laughs) They will now get to know you. They'll interview you. They will choose a book each month that they think is suitable to you. They'll gift wrap it. They'll send it to you. It's about 400 500 pound a year for a subscription. They have thousands of subscriptions now. So they've transformed the finances of the company because they've thought about it as a service, not a product. should be so much easier to innovate when you're, you are a big corporate, shouldn't it? I mean, you've got a, a, a probably a big brand. You've got direct relationship with customers. You've got huge expertise within your own business. You have ready access to capital. It should be so much easier than doing anything as a startup where you've got nothing. So Startups have constraints, and that is a really effective way to build something. So we know that you know nine out of ten startups aren't going to make it. But when you have very limited time, 
very limited budget and the agility to test, iterate according to where market signals coming back at you are telling you the demand is, um, you're actually hungry to build something. You are much more likely to build something that is worthwhile. If you go to Shenzhen in China, where um, pretty much all of our hardware is made, it's the most exciting Darwinistic battle for survival. And these small groups of entrepreneurs are creating a tiny modification of a product to see if there's demand. So you know, the first two-SIM smartphone was a couple of guys on the streets trying this, and then the big phone companies copy. It's working out how you can create a differentiator. The big companies have a couple of big problems. One of them is politics. If you come up with a new idea that could just save the company, people get jealous. They want to stop you. The other is silos. Gillian Tett from your parish wrote a book called The Silo Effect. And people think in terms of what their department does. And it's very hard to build something that's going to transform the whole business if, well, somebody else is line manager. It's not my problem. The big corporations that seem to get it, at the top, they've committed to making fundamental changes, but also fundamental investments in what could be the future. Autodesk um, is a software company that makes the tools that help build this place. Um, 30 years ago, it grew out of this big transition from the mainframe computer to the desktop computer, and a bunch of software people built AutoCAD, which is the software that designers, architects use. Now, we're moving into a different era. So how does Autodesk stay relevant? We're in the era of AI, cloud, subscriptions rather than buying software. To their credit, they have stuck to a commitment to spend a large proportion of their revenue on R&D, but not just product-faced R&D, playful R&D. They have a pier in San Francisco on the Embarcadero where they've got maker machines, 3D printers, laser jets, robots, artists on paid fellowships, just so they can see how people are playing with tools and what may be in the future software could do to help them. And Jeff Kowalski, who was the CTO um, for a long time, talks about looking for our blind spots. It's not stuff we think we're going to make. It may be stuff that could become in a product in 10 years. So about four years ago, they started playing with versions of AI that could work alongside the designer. So if you are trying to build an aeroplane seat, you can put some constraints in. I, would, I want it to be no more than this number of kilos. I want it to be this material, this wide. And the AI will take all those dimensions and in real time give you hundreds if not thousands of iterations that then you can choose. So this started out as a big experimental project. They realised this is transformative to the whole process of designing products because it's putting AI into the designer's toolkit without it being complex tech. They called it generative design because the AI, a bit like nature, generates iterations and if you like them, like Darwin's process of evolution, um, that one may be better than that one. Within um, two years, they'd started putting this into products that are now for sale, and it's going to be a billion-dollar business because they weren't looking for it. 
it's not just the structure, is it, or the leadership at the top. It's also a question of incentives. I mean, the, I mean, there's a saying that it's far better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally in most businesses, which, in my experience, tends to be true. Um, how do you encourage people to succeed unconventionally? You do this very difficult thing for a corporation, which is give them psychological safety. And that means creating a culture where to come up with a stupid idea is not laughed at, it's considered, and maybe you're given space to start experimenting. The um, most successful example I found was X, which is part of Alphabet, Google. Um, It's their moonshot factory, where they've created really valuable businesses that didn't exist before. The first big self-driving car business, Waymo, um, a cybersecurity business. They've just spun off a business that uses stratosphere-level balloons to deliver internet connectivity to parts of the world that don't have it, a drone delivery business. Um, They are obsessed with how you can get a diverse group of people, not just ethnically diverse and gender diverse, but cognitively diverse, who think in different ways. So there'll be a concert pianist next to a mathematician, next to an engineer. Get them thinking through problems together. And X is about how can we use emerging technologies in a different way to solve a problem that would affect a billion people. But also to give them this psychological safety so proposing something unreasonable isn't laughed at. Um, The youngest person at X, Kathy Hannon, who was brought in at 27 to do marketing, she had a little obsession that she was a bit shy of talking about. She thought, we need more carbon neutral fuels. Now, seawater has carbon dioxide, hydrogen. What if you could take the carbon dioxide and the hydrogen and combine them to make a fuel, a carbon neutral fuel? And somebody had read a research paper published by Xerox Park suggesting this was possible. So she goes to the boss and says, I'd like to try this. She wasn't shouted down. They give you a little bit of budget, a little bit of time. And if you get to certain metrics, you get the next stage. And they also, at the very beginning, make you set out your kill criterion. What number, if you don't reach it, you will kill the whole project. And her kill criterion was, it can't be more expensive if we can make this fuel than petrol at the petrol pump. Um, So they started working on this project. They proved that the science worked. They hired the guy who wrote the paper. They had five people in the team, then 10 people in the team. And over two years, they took the price per gallon equivalent of this stuff they actually showed you could make from $1,000 a gallon to $100 a gallon to 50 to 20 to 15. And then she goes to the boss, whose name is Astro Teller, and he does go around on rollerblades although his real name's Eric, but that's a whole other thing, and said, I think we should kill this project. It's going to take longer getting to 5 or $6 a gallon and cost more money than we'd planned. So, you know, my kill criterion was that was the price. And because they killed it and they overcame their own biases towards favouring their own project, they all got cash bonuses. And that's what Google at X wants. They want to get the best people 
mixing together, coming up with unreasonable ideas and then measuring and testing the whole time. I find that this example of Google X fascinating and Astro Teller, I never knew he was called Eric, although that's not a great name for an innovator, is it really? But um, he has a wonderful title called Captain of Moonshots, I believe, doesn't he? Which is uh, second only to someone else who works there called Obi Felton, who is the head of getting moonshots ready for contact with the real world. And that actually says that on her business card. Fantastic. <laughs> so we need to iterate to innovate our own job titles, I think. But one place in which they didn't really get the moonshots ready for contact with the real world was Google Glass. And I mean, people that talk the whole time about minimum viable product and that you just have to create something and throw it out into the market and keep iterating. What went wrong with Google Glass? Was it too minimal? Was it too? Was it just not viable or was it not really a product? They didn't follow their own rules because the boss got very excited about it. So when I was in there spending time with them, Sergey Brin kind of walked past and, you know, was chatting to people, that's his lair, that's where he's based. Um, co-founder of Google has taken a special interest in the moonshot bit and if the boss is looking over your shoulder, if the boss says some things are important, clearly there's kind of prejudicial resources put towards them. And Sergey got very excited about this new form of visual computing and they threw the marketing budget at it. They had the spreads in vogue, the Diane von Furstenberg catwalk, before it was ready, before they tested whether that was what the market wanted and egg on their face. And they learned a painful lesson through that. It's actually now come back for industrial purposes. If you are maintaining a ship, if you are um, in a factory and there's lots of complex units, it actually works very effectively having this kind of head-based computer that can tell you where to go or what to do. Sure, and Snap are also kind of experimenting with something similar as well, aren't they? Um, what, um, one of the fascinating chapters in the book concerns... Um, Intercorp, which is this amazing company in Peru, which I think uh, you write accounts for about 4% of uh, Peru's GDP, which is, does everything from kind of banks to supermarkets. Um, I've always been fascinated by innovation in the less developed parts of the world because you don't have so much legacy institutions, you don't have so much infrastructure, you don't necessarily have so many kind of powerful incumbents in these key markets. And so therefore, it, they can be a lot more innovative markets. But can you tell us about Intercorp? What is their secret source? What do they do? So I don't know if you've met many journalists, but we can only function when a deadline is about to smash us in the face. Um, my de deadline for delivering the book was October the 31st. And on October the 27th, I heard of this amazing Peruvian company that was doing extraordinary things. So I kind of pushed the limits. It's a company that started out with banks, then built supermarkets, then has hotels and cinemas, 80,000 employees, $8 billion in turnover, and 4% of the GDP, as you say, John. Um, and they had a problem. Peru, if you haven't been there, is not quite what you expect. The centre of Lima, the capital, there are bars on windows everywhere. If you want to buy um, some chewing gum in a store you have to do it through bars in the window. You can't go into the store in a lot of the city. And it's because they had 30 years of terrorism and then they had hyperinflation. It's a kind of a scared, dysfunctional place to a certain degree. 
And government's not really delivered. They've had 15 education ministers in the last 15 years, and Peru is constantly the bottom of the OECD league tables of school educational attainment. And nobody seems to want to do anything about it. So the guy who founded Intercourt in 1995, um, Carlos Rodriguez Pastor, he had an interesting backstory. His dad used to be the central banker in Peru, but there was a military coup. He was chased out of the country, lost everything, had to start again in California. So Carlos, as a kid, grew up there, six brothers and sisters. American education goes to Wall Street, works as a hedge fund, but is obsessed with how we can go and solve some of the problems for Peru. So he and his dad go back in the 90s, buy for $80,000 this little bank, make it big. But he's constantly thinking, our country needs some help. How can we be useful whilst building a business? Can you put profit and purpose together and use that to innovate, to create new business value? The problem they faced was they couldn't get enough good talent in the company because the education system was so lousy. Plus the customers were not aspiring to spend more money and join that middle class because they hadn't been educated. So he thought, why don't we do what the government's failed to do? Why don't we start a national school network? And we'll do it for profit. We can't lose money, otherwise it's not sustainable. But we'll do it really, really cheaply so that the lower middle class can afford it, $120 a month. But we'll start with questioning the best educationist in the world about if you're starting from scratch, from age 3 to 18, what would you do? You've got the internet, you can do online plus offline. You've got tablet computers, you can have kids in little groups of six learning. They built a new school system with the help of people like IDEO. About four years ago, I think, they started doing some investing. They've now got 52 of these schools. They're exporting them to Panama and Mexico. The kids have twice the national average in the attainment tests. And then they thought, well, there's no MIT in Peru. Why don't we create the technical university? They're now getting amazing talent coming in. They're now raising the incomes of the people who have gone through that system. So they think, well, there's a few other problems. Healthcare is pretty lousy. If you're not rich, what do you do? We've got 2,000 pharmacies. Why don't we start a national health clinic? Again, for-profit, very low cost, super efficient, based on the real needs of the people. So they've put on the website homepage now a new mission statement for the company. We want to make Peru the best place in Latin America to raise a family. See, when you have a purpose and a mission, as well as profit, as well as a CEO who's determined to make change, that is innovation. You create new value and attract, you attract great people. They also, as far as I know, invented a new word, which is tunking, which is now my new favourite word. What, what does that mean? These people don't have an innovation department in the big tower where the bank is. They've decided to rent a couple of houses in the lower middle class street where their target customers live. And it's kind of a rough area. I arrived there at night. I'd booked a room on Hotels.com, which turned out to be somebody's apartment. The taxi driver wouldn't let me out because he said it was too dangerous. But they've taken a couple of houses that now their team's not just product designers and software people and engineers, but anthropologists and people who are living with their customers. 
And they're trying to create a culture where we can create things that the customer actually wants, but we're socially useful. But how do you get people who have grown up in Peru to come up with bold ideas, to have this psychological safety? Um, so they created this word tunking, but I think it's named after one of the people there, which is how you deliver bad news with love. If you want to tell someone their idea isn't going to go any further, it just doesn't test, but without them feeling dejected. Did you do a lot of tunking at Wired? So as an editor, um, I guess I saw my role to an extent as trying to bring out the best of the team. We were a startup. We had not very many people, not very big resources. Um, part of Condé Nast, but we were kind of the low cost bit of Condé Nast. We didn't have like flower budgets and limousines. We had, you know, the Santander bicycles. Um, but I think if you want to get the best out of people, it's how you can help them grow, how you can give them feedback and give them chances to do things that they're not yet ready for and then help them grow into that role. And again, some of the best organisations that use the talent of their people to grow are those where the boss doesn't want to be in power. The boss wants to delegate the power to everyone. There's a company whose games you play called Supercell in Helsinki. It's probably the most successful games company in Europe. And the Clash of Clans, heyday. Um, the founder, Ilka Pananen, often says, I want to be the world's least powerful CEO because he sees his role as finding amazing people and just giving them space to decide what they work on. It's called Supercell because it's made up of cells of people, like five to 18 people, and they can decide how they spend their time. And if they're not excited about a project, they can move to another team. Jonathan Downey, I met there, he'd been leading a team of 10 people for a year on a game. And these are expensive people. This is a proper commitment. And they tested it on the Canadian app store. And it was kind of not delivering the engagement they wanted. They kept iterating it, but it was becoming a Frankenstein monster. Um, so because this is Helsinki, he says to the team, let's go for a sauna, a team sauna. Um, in the sauna, they realise they're not excited about this game and they want to do other things. So he comes back to the office, emails everybody in the office, we've cancelled the game, we're going to redeploy. And he didn't tell the boss because the boss happened not to be in the office that afternoon, but that's how the boss wanted it. So how do you enable good people to do their best work? Saunas, we wrote about that on Sifted the other day, that they're not very kind of diversity friendly, are they, Saunas? Uh, which uh, does raise a point that you quote Nicholas Negroponte, who runs the MIT Media Lab, um, who talks about the kind of um, the creativity comes from unlikely juxtapositions. And the best way to maximize that is to mix ages, cultures and disciplines. And this has become a real mantra, I think. Because uh, it I, works. Well, does it always? I mean, I uh, was also reading this book by um, uh, Brian Merchant on the iPhone. And if you look at the kind of history of the iPhone, what they did was they, they locked 20 engineers in a room inside the Apple building in Cupertino for about a year and never let them out. Um, and they all looked exactly the same and had very similar backgrounds. And they came up with the iPhone. 
you go to Alibaba in China, um, they have extraordinarily kind of homogenous teams of people working on products. So is this true? Does diversity really lead to great creativity or is it something we like to believe? Um, unlikely juxtapositions lead to great new ideas flowing. And Steve Jobs, to give you a counter argument, knew this when he took over Pixar in Emeryville, California. Um, it used to be a soup factory. And when he took over in the 90s, um, there'd been a plan to create three new buildings, one for the animators, one for the production team, and one for the management. And he said, no, 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 we want one building, but we need to design a huge central atrium where everybody has to come together and collide. And we're going to have all the pigeonholes with their mail in the middle. We're going to have um, one set of toilets for the whole building in the middle. They had arguments about that, so they had more. But he wanted the animator to run into the accountant, to run into the production people, because he thought that's how, for a creative company like Pixar, you get fresh ideas flowing. And there's a very interesting experiment happening at the moment about um, a mile west of here. The Crick Institute, funded by the Wellcome Trust, the Cancer Research Charity, the universities, is the biggest biomedical research centre in Europe trying to solve cancer and genomic illness. And it's been open for 18 months. What's really interesting is the building was designed to create these unlikely encounters. There are no walls on the inside. So traditionally, scientific research has been a type of scientist, you know, a physicist, a biochemist working on something. They realize in the world of data analytics and machine learning, you can no longer be siloed. So how do you create a building with spaces where the bioinformatics expert will meet the genomics expert, will meet the visualization expert? And it's quite interesting. For instance, they designed a very, very wide staircase and they made it really hard to find the lift in the hope that as you're going up the staircase, you'll meet someone. And it's so, early days, but has it worked? Um, it's created a very interesting culture where um, it's not like a conventional academic institution where you have tenure. It's much more startup-like, but they are coming up with some fresh approaches to what is a very important question. When they um, applied for planning permission... Um, they wanted a 450-person cafe restaurant at the heart of the building because that's where they thought these conversations would happen. Um, and Camden Council said, no, we want you to use the local restaurants. We want you to be economically helping revive the neighbourhood. Um, so Paul Nurse, the Nobel Prize-winning scientist who's running the Crick, then tells Camden Council planners that um, when Francis Crick and... James Watson and Rosalind Franklin were trying to solve this double helix thing of DNA in the 1950s. Um, Crick had a table in the Eagle pub in Cambridge where people would drop by for beer and sandwiches every lunchtime and they'd kind of make little suggestions to him and there'd be, you know, spontaneous conversations. Um, and he said that's how they worked out this double helix thing. And he said to the planners, um, so if you don't let us have our restaurant, maybe you're going to hold back the discovery of this cure for cancer. And they got their restaurant. Now, I'm going to open it up to questions very soon, but I have one last um, question for you. Uh, but first, I'm going to conduct a quiz, a 
quick fire quiz in the audience. So I'm going to give you all a thousand dollars, which you could have invested in 2010. And you can invest in these companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Netflix, or Domino's Pizza. So how many of you would have invested in Apple? A few. Uh, Google, Amazon, Netflix, Domino's Pizza. Oh, well, um, it is indeed Domino's Pizza. So David, explain to us why Domino's Pizza was the most successful investment over that period. Because it didn't see itself as a pizza company, but as a tech company. So Domino's Pizza had a terrible reputation for low-quality ingredients. It was a bit of a laughing stock. Um, the CEO decides to fess up, goes on television saying in commercials, we have terrible pizzas, it's disgusting. It's, you know, you wouldn't want to eat it. We're going to change, we're going to change. Um, so he, first of all, owned up to the problem and was transparent, which helps with innovation. Um, but then they started experimenting with these emerging technologies, um, allowing people to order a customised pizza thrown out before anybody else was, um, allowing them to track where their pizza was using GPS before anybody else was, um, and constantly turning tech into a way of telling a better story about the pizza, and using data science in fairly clever but basic ways, if they wanted to test demand for products they weren't yet making, they'd list them anyway on the website and the app. And if enough people were ordering them, they'd send them a, oh, sorry, we don't have any in stock. Here's a credit note so you can buy something else. And they'd take that measurement. And every kind of company now needs to see it as a tech company, even if you think you're doing something analog. There is a saucepan maker in Hong Kong called Maya that makes pots and pans. It's the second biggest pots and pan maker in the world. Stanley Cheng, who started it in 1961, is having a conversation with his son, Vincent, who's in his 30s, who's kind of iPhone everything. Vincent says, Dad, you know the internet's coming for the kitchen too. The connected kitchen is arriving. What are we going to do with the pots and pans? Stanley didn't really know. So Vincent says, we need a startup inside the company just experimenting. We've got sensors that track everything. We can control everything to tiny degrees. Yet when you're cooking, if you're using gas, it's high, medium or low. There's no feedback loop. Why don't we take that tech-led approach to the saucepan? So they developed a new kind of saucepan which had a temperature sensor embedded in the metal and they had a conductive heater that then connects to an app and they hired half a dozen michelin starred chefs to design recipes that then they measured precisely the temperature and the number of seconds they put the videos of them making the food inside the app and so you john thornhill can cook the you know salmon fricassee as the thomas keller chef prepared it exactly the same because it through bluetooth controls for the the right temperature for the right number of seconds. And their business model is people will subscribe. You'll get 40 or 50 new recipes a month. You'll subscribe. So I said to Stanley, how big do you think this is going to be? It's from a barn in Napa Valley they're doing this. He said, well, it's either going to be a $0 business or a billion dollar business, but if we don't try, we're going to be zero anyway. It's 
lot easier to order it in on Uber Eats. The Internet of Saucepans. There we go. Uh, right, now questions from the audience. Who would like to ask a question? We have some microphones going around the room, I believe. So, Hi there. Um, could you maybe rattle off a couple more companies that are well-known that are doing innovation well, besides the obvious? And then what do you tell people who are working at companies that do not have the leadership in place that are embracing innovation? What leave. <laughs> Seriously, leave. Life's too short to put your productive time in the hands of somebody who's not doing anything useful. Um, Astro Teller said something good about this. I mean, there's a whole bit of it. He talks to a lot of corporates and he advises people, you know, what do you want out of your life? It's not about just paying the mortgage. It's about doing something purposeful. And if you're motivated, you'll find a way to pay the mortgage. Um, I'll give you a couple of quick examples of big successful organizations that have zagged when other people um, zigged. One of them is an airline, Qantas, which lost a few billion dollars for two or three years running um, earlier this decade because airlines are shitty businesses. You don't control your fuel price. You have the online travel agencies taking a lot of your commission. You are competing with the low-cost carriers. Um, But they put a new guy in charge, Alan Joyce, who had been leading the internal startup low-cost airline, Jetstar, which... um, competed with Qantas. So they set it up in a different city in Melbourne, not Sydney, and it worked. And Jetstar became a big success story. He thinks, right, well, how do we compete as a commodified airline business? What do we have that is defensible? We have a loyalty program that Australians love. It's not like Avios. You spend and earn Qantas loyalty points going to the supermarket, going to the bar, On your credit card, most credit card spending in Australia earns those points. Half the population of Australia has Qantas loyalty card. And they thought, this is giving us insights into our customers. We know what they want. Plus, they love hearing from us. So if we send them an offer, it's not like marketing. It's like, oh, the loyalty points. So they've set up at HQ behind Sydney Airport a separate warehouse with 150 people prototyping new business ideas based on the loyalty program. And when you go in on the ground floor, there's a replica lunar rover to try and give you a sense that they're not thinking like an airline. And there are post-it notes everywhere. There are lean, agile, sprint methodologies. There's a little pitch stage with like a TED-type stage. Um, There's a lot of DevOps and agile approaches and they're prototyping, testing, measuring, but working out what might work. So far, this team has built a health insurance business, a life insurance business, a food and drink club, a golf club, credit cards, currency cards. This department is now 30% of the profits of the entire group. And so they're saved. They're commodified no, no more. Um, The second example I'll give is not a company, but it's a big, famous, kind of sclerotic, bureaucratic organization, which is called um, the Pentagon. The American Department of Defense, as well as having the world's biggest office building, um, has three million people. And it's a big, fat bureaucracy where things move slowly. They will have a multi-billion dollar 
contract given to Lockheed Martin that will come in two years late, a few billion over budget, and won't be what the troops in the front line need because ISIS is a startup and they can put a grenade on a DJI drone and just send it over and who's going to stop that? When um, Obama set up healthcare.gov and you remember the website didn't work and it was a crisis and embarrassment, um, they pulled in some people from startups to solve the problem that became a permanent bit of the White House called the United States Digital Service. Three years ago, um, they decided to help the Department of Defence, and they gave a guy called Chris Lynch, who was a startup guy who'd been jailed at school for planting a bomb when he was 17. He was not a Pentagon-type person. Um, he wears a hoodie that says, hack the Pentagon on it, at work. Um, he set up a team of 40 people on secondment from startups whose mission was to solve the shit that the bureaucracy had placed in the lap of the people fighting. And their mission is to use tech and agile approaches to save lives. So they went to the front line in a Middle Eastern country and hacked together a radio signal jammer so that the ISIS drones couldn't come over with grenades. They started the first bug bounty contest in American government. Everybody said it was illegal. You can't give friendly hackers access to our websites. They used lawyers to hack the bureaucracy to say, actually, legally, you can do this. It's now mandatory across all American government departments. And they earned their respect by solving the problem. So it's like a little virus inside the bureaucracy that's allowed to do agile stuff. And it gave me faith that um, even in dysfunctional sclerotic organisations, a particular type of person who doesn't give a shit what people think about them, who's able to motivate some people who can just build good shit can earn the respect of the people who wanted them dead and can actually have an impact. And their mission is they are saving American soldiers' lives. Thank you very much, David. This is the first of several talks that we're going to be having at uh, Second Home uh, this week and next, I believe. Um, but there's a fabulous start uh, to the discussions. So thank you very much, David. Thank you for coming. Breakthrough is Creative Workspace Second Home's year-round educational program designed to help members make their dent in the universe. If you enjoyed this talk, check out what else is coming up at secondhome.io or follow us at at secondhome underscore io. Second Home, a workspace as creative as you are.